Hey, podcast listener. Are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast, where you'll hear from women entrepreneurs who are doing good in the world, from spark to screw up to success. Thinking big is in their core. It's in yours and it's in mine. I've traveled to 50 countries and seven continents, done an Ironman, and co-founded a company that has generated millions of dollars for sustainability. My name is Geraldine Carter, and I'm delighted to share with you conversations and coaching with amazing women. Time to get inspired and grow your impact. My guests today are Carol Bridges and Leslie Von Eschen, the co-founders of CostCare. CostCare is a state-of-the-art medical office in Missoula, Montana, that aims to combat the inaccessibility and high cost of healthcare. It provides convenient, easy access to care, transparency, and affordable pricing. CostCare began as a walk-in clinic, but they've since expanded into family practice with direct primary care, occupational medicine, and wellness. Leslie and Carol came to co-found CostCare when they could no longer tolerate the current model of medical care as it's practiced now. We talk about how they got started, the struggles and the challenges that they have faced along the way, and their vision for transforming the way healthcare is practiced as we know it. Carol Bridges and Leslie Von Eschen. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, Geraldine. So great to have you both here. So for our listeners, you know that I always like to start off with a question, and this is a curveball for you, for you ladies that I didn't mention. When did you realize that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Mm. I remember the exact moment. Tell us what it was. Uh, so we, uh, it was... Uh, It was, I did not anticipate ever being an entrepreneur. Uh, I was an employed physician. I mean, I've gone all through college and medical school residency. I was an employed physician at one of the local hospitals. Um, I was doing primary care. And after about eight years, then got uh, recruited into the emergency room and uh, kind of a slash emergency room fast track. And that is where I met Leslie. It was in the fast track. She essentially ran the fast track. Uh, which is kind of a, an urgent care that was attached to the emergency room at the hospital. And the, everything was going well. Uh, you know, the emergency room was doing well. The fast track was busy. We were seeing on our normal days, 90 patients a day with two providers. Um, and some administrative changes were made. And essentially, they had taken this um, urgent care that was so busy and somewhat priced us out of the urgent care market. And this urgent care went from 90 patients a day to 20 patients a day within almost a year. And so it was evident that they were going to close the, the, eventually this urgent care was going to close. But in the meantime, the administration had realized that they did not need two providers on it one time, obviously. Uh, So especially when we started hitting about 40 patients a day, 
And what they did is essentially put us all in a room, all of these providers in a room and said, well, basically we're cutting the shift in half and you guys work it out. What? And left and left us there. And I remember walking out and I walked out and I was so mad and I walked out and we, in fact, we all walked out out of this, you know, as we all then talked about what are we going to do? And then we all walk out and I, and I just said, time to do our own thing. And Leslie was the only one who said, yep. And that's when I knew when I walked out of that room, I thought I will never, ever let an administrator be, you know, be in charge of my fate, of my uh, profession ever again. And that's when, and we left about a year later. Wow. Nice. So it was crystal clear to you in that moment. Yep. And how about for you, Leslie? What was the moment that you realized? Was it in that same moment or at a separate moment? It was, you know, I kind of recall having some talks with Carol back and forth before we got to that dreadful day meeting. We're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I remember sitting down, walked out of the urgent care, went to use the bathroom, sat down, and there was a sign posted right above the toilet that you couldn't not read when you sat down to go to the bathroom, basically blaming the medical providers for losing all the patients in the urgent care. And at that point, that was kind of the last straw for me. And I don't know if you remember that, Carol. I don't remember that. Sitting in that bathroom. Like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. So I tore that sign off the wall, put that in the garbage because that didn't work. And shortly after was that meeting that Carol's talking about. And, and we were just done at that point. And clearly the writing was on the wall. And it was time to do something that was better for us, better for the patients, better for the community. And we knew we could do it. And we went for it, frankly, right after that. So, mm-hmm. We did. So tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about direct primary care and the model and how it's the same and how it's different from what most of us know. So uh, direct primary care is basically a membership model uh, for medicine. And a lot of people confuse it with concierge medicine, but it is very different. And I've had a lot of people through the years tell me that I should do concierge medicine. But to be honest, I just couldn't in my own um, conscience. And of the type of provider I wanted to be, not that I I have anything against concierge practices, I don't, but for me, it just didn't work for me. And so direct primary, when we discovered direct primary care, it was really the perfect solution for, and honestly, I think it is going to be the solution for primary care in this country overall. But basically, it's a membership model. So a patient pays, so basically a patient pays a a standard of monthly fee. For, their prim- for the primary care services. Um, and, and that includes all of, typically, every, every direct primary care practice does it differently. I can just say how we do it. Uh, that it includes all of the office visits, you know, your wellness visits, any in-house testing that can be done. So somebody comes in and needs a strep test, a rapid strep test. So anything that we can, that we can give them a, an answer to that test within 10 minutes or so, then that is all included in the monthly membership. Um, and then other wellness screenings are included. Um, and, uh, and then all of, anything else that's not included, then we just provide for the patient at cost plus 10%. So we don't make any money on anything else. Uh, the, the monthly membership is what pays our salaries and pays our overhead, keeps the lights on. Um, and then we deliver everything else at either, either cost plus 10% or it's included in the membership. What is different about that with concierge is concierge typically is expensive. Um, you pay a flat fee at the beginning of the year. Typically, it's around $2,000. That's one of the even cheaper ones. And really what that allows you basically is access to that practice. Uh, they continue to back bill 
the insurance on the back end. So if you come in and have an office visit, uh, they are going to bill the insurance company for that office visit uh, or any labs or anything else. So, you know, in, in, in our industry, that is referred to as double dipping. So in direct primary care, we do not double dip. I mean, really, the idea is that we are we that we really don't have any ties to the to the insurance companies. So we don't have to submit claims. We don't have to submit a bill. We don't submit anything to the insurance companies. So let's go back to the moment where, you know, Carol, you walk out of the meeting in the hospital and you're like, that's it. We're done. And Leslie, you've seen the poster on the back door of the of the stall. And you're like, I'm so over this. We're out of here. How did you go from there to building out cost care? That is a great question. And we originally, Carol and I, and we had a couple other potential business partners with us. And we went to my house and drank a whole bunch of wine and came up with a clinic concept and a name. And the name was fascinating. So cost care was the final name we ended up with because we were convinced that we were going to be the clinic for Costco all over the country because we could do a better job. Costco never took us up on that offer, but we still became cost care, which we still laugh about today. We started a one room clinic in Stevensville, Montana, which was literally one room. It had me, a computer, a desk, a bed, and some supplies. Or it had Carol or Jean or Marsha, a couple other gals that helped us in the very beginning. And that's how we figured out what it even meant to have your own clinic, what a code was, how to take somebody's money for medicine. We had no idea about any of that. That was in 2007. Um, we had a flat fee visit rate at that point, 45 bucks a pop. You could walk in the door for pretty much anything normal under the sun, whether it was a bladder infection or a blood pressure problem, or you needed some stitches. I think we charged a little extra for that, but really simple, um, basically retail medicine modeled that after minute clinic, which was a hot ticket item down in the South part of the U S that was in 2007. From there, we moved to Missoula, the clinic into Missoula in 2008 and opened up two urgent cares and a family practice all in one year in Missoula. The price had to go up a little bit because that was a lot more, more staffing, more overhead. At that point, we were $60 a pop. Still locking the door for 60 bucks for your medical needs. What we found from there was people were coming into our urgent cares for pretty, pretty uh, intensive things from diabetes to heart disease, cholesterol issues, weight issues, all those things that they couldn't get any help on because they couldn't afford it. Now they had a place they could go where it was more affordable which is why we opened the primary care, frankly. And we took it from there. And after four years of doing that, we opened a fourth clinic in Helena, same model, uh, still doing cash. By that point, Obamacare had rolled around. And so we also ended up taking insurance. That's kind of a long story. But we did end up taking insurance, which upped the price of everything, unfortunately. So now you could walk in and pay cash or we could bill your insurance and the insurance billing rates were two to three times as much as the cash rates. That's just the reality of the industry. Uh, and that was kind of our life from 2008 to 2017, 18, when we started to reevaluate again, what we we're going to do, introduce direct primary care. And that's what came next. Right. In fact, we were in a position that, uh, you know, with taking insurance, I mean, it was, it, it just it increased our overhead so much. and you know, we were just had the wrong and it just drove us into honestly the same concept, the same mindset of, I mean, every physician office nowadays, you know, the the see more, do more, bill more. Yeah. 
right, of insurance of trying to just, and you're, and you're just chasing your tail all day long trying to see more, do more, build more to pay all this overhead. And part, a lot of that overhead is staffing to have to build the insurance company. And so, and, and honestly, we were losing. And at one point, Leslie said, looked at me and said, you know, I, we're going to have to hire another person in the billing office. And I, and I said, absolutely not. We are, I'm, I'm not going to see more people to try to pay for another person to try to collect the money from an insurance company for a job I've already done. And so that's when Leslie and I just, we decided to retreat. We retreated for two days. We just got out of town. We took our computers and I said, we have to figure something else out because, you know, I didn't leave. You know, we didn't leave the hospital and the security of that salary and everything else to just become like everybody else. And so uh, so that is where that is when we decided that we needed to do something different. So as we on that retreat, we started researching different medical models and looked at different clinics and different websites. And we, we came across direct primary care. And it was evident as soon as we really started looking at it that that was that's where we were going to go and it was it has been what i've loved about it the most is that it puts us back in the mindset that we had when we first opened cost care 11 years ago when we were so uh when patients are paying cash or you know paying at the time of service that everybody in the room is is conscientious of the labs that are going to be drawn and any testing that's going to be ordered and how much that's going to cost the patient at that moment and now we're completely out of that see more do more build more mindset and now we're back into being very again conscientious of cost and to the patient and especially with high deductible insurance again and what they're getting these um, tests that they're going to be left with having to pay for and so I'm, I'm just really happy so happy that we did this because again it's it's all the reasons that we left the security of the hospital wow <laughs> so a question's coming to mind just for people who live in Missoula that I think just branding wise may sort of put all things cost care and community and I forget what the other names of the other walk-in clinics are may lump together walk-in clinics with cost care. Is that a problem that you run up against? Once in a while. And so we'll have, you know, it's kind of like marketing and advertising. It's really interesting. We just had another big meeting this morning. And we'll still have people that show up at CostCare Walk-In, which is on Russell Street, because they saw it on the TV. Well, we've never advertised on the TV. <laughs> so like, <laughs> no, that was no care. And vice versa. And so there's still in that, in that part of our business, there's, I think there's always going to be a little bit of that because people don't know it's just a walk-in clinic and they get confused because there's care in a lot of clinic names, uh, including ours. And so... Um, but the direct primary care, that's its own division. And that doesn't get confused with anything because nobody else here is doing that. And it's such a different, different entity, just in a way it's paid for that. That's the game changer out there. And it's just, that part is interesting. Just to speak to that a little further, we still have people that come into the walk-in clinic 12 years later who didn't know we had a primary care at all. And I mean, we have a crazy primary care, crazy busy primary care, and they didn't know it existed. They thought it was just walk-in clinic over here in Russell. And that's with all the advertising, all the word of mouth and all the stuff. And so it's an ongoing challenge for a small business for sure in medicine when you're private. Yeah, to differentiate yourself. So just for clarity, NowCare and other places like that are walk-in clinics that do primary care Though the care may be the same, the payment model is totally different. So the other walk-in clinics, such as Now Care and um, 
and I know uh, CPG has a, a walk, a couple of walk-in clinics, I think, in town. So those are all strictly walk-in, and I don't think they do primary care. I shouldn't speak for them because I honestly don't know. But typically, urgent care and walk-in are pretty are fairly separated. So so they those are all walk-in clinics at like our walk, like we have a clinic that is dedicated to walk-in, and then they have separate primary care providers that are yeah your traditional models of you know typically insurance-based uh, models and then direct yeah and then we have our direct primary care model okay okay I think it's important to just tease that out for listeners you know for those of us who don't pay super close attention that that there may be some overlap but they're not one in the same in terms of model and what you're what you're providing mm-hmm. so now being 2019 what are you finding that's working well with what you're doing I can talk about 2019. Now we've had a year under our belts in direct primary care, since we're going to focus on that. And what that's allowed us to do uh, is really market that more effectively to small business and medium-sized business. And it's amazing. And so a lot of my days are spent out there talking to members of the community um, from anybody with three employees to 65 employees and explaining here's a different benefit to look out for your employees. And it is so awesome. We have companies that change from these really expensive traditional healthcare plans to a high deductible plan with a DPC built into it us. And they're saving, one company saved $40,000 just by doing that, just changing the benefit structure. We have other companies that don't have enough money to offer health insurance on any level because it's so expensive. And they'll just offer a direct primary care benefit directly through us. And that builds employee retention. Um, there's, you know, extended access, weekends, holidays, all of it. They are covered, which, I mean, that's just a game changer for the employers, for the employees. And frankly, for the community, once this thing gets a cooking, which is what we've seen so far this year. And what are you finding that's still really challenging? Carol, <laughs> you to talk about that. <laughs> so I would say, so I would say one of the one of the challenges is uh, working with um, insurance groups and talking with insurance groups about the model, and it's just very hard for them to understand that you just can't compare apples to apples, and they're still trying to, you know, they're still comparing us with a with a maybe you know like a really common when we talk about billing in healthcare, we do it with these codes. And so, you know, like a 99213 is worth, I don't know, $127 or something. And they just can't get, they can't come away from thinking about a code for a visit versus this monthly membership and that there would be no additional charge or code applied. You know, the insurance companies are struggling with that. You know, one of the things, the other things that we have seen in 2019 is that we've, you know, we've had a year under our belt, so we've seen the results of, you know, one thing that is nice about direct primary care is that you have access to your provider almost 24-7, if not 24-7. So my patients have my cell phone, they have my email, so they can call me, text me, email me, come into the office. Um, And so they have, they are, you know, readily, I am readily accessible to them. And so what that allows us to do is to keep them out of the urgent care, keep them out of the ER, keep them out of the hospital, possibly. And, and so that is the expensive part of medicine. I mean, one ER visit is two and a half years of your primary care, direct primary care membership covered. If I can just prevent one ER visit. And so trying to help the insurance companies see that. 
um, is probably been, I feel, one of our, our biggest challenges. They just, they just want to compare a visit to a visit and, and they can't, it's hard for them to really appreciate the, the big picture of where the savings really applies with direct primary care. What do you think is so hard for them to see? I think one of their biggest struggles with that, Geraldine, is, you know, it's so it's based on codes and data, everything, codes and data. And direct primary care is not based on codes and data in that regard. And so the insurers feel like if they can't get the code, which then somehow they aren't getting the data, then one, they have no way to look at what the actual spend on the plan is. This is according to them. And how to adjust the spend on the plan based on all of these factors that were roll on codes, which revolve on data. And so they don't like that. And there's a way to mitigate that, which we also talk about with them, but it's still really a stalling point trying to cross that bridge, um, making everybody happy there. Although everybody wins. That's the interesting part. You mean everyone would win if it could all get kind of figured out? Right. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a no brainer to me. So I'm having a little bit of a hard time comprehending why this is so hard for insurance companies to understand. I mean, I get that I don't exist in their world and their numbers and their codes and everything, but nonetheless, right. Right. if, you know, if they're operating directed toward the bottom line, it seems like there would be an incentive to try and understand it or figure out a way. So I'm like scratching my head over here. We've come away <laughs> from a few meetings, scratching our head too. That's probably another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like there are larger forces at play that are like, just don't want to see you succeed. Yeah. And I think, and it's, it has changed and it's different. It's changed. And it's, it, and for some people, you know, that, you know, if you have an insurance company that a lot of their, you know, they feel their value that they bring to a client is looking at claims data and showing them, you know, what, what, yeah, what their cost and what their spend might be, or, or, you know, an insurance company trying to show them, this is what we can save you, but now they have no claims data and can't do that. You know, so they're threatened. They're feeling, you know, they feel threatened. And so it's about, but we can, but we can alleviate that very easily with providing, you know, some claim, you know, zero claims to them. So at least they can then monitor diagnosis and things that we're seeing, um, which we've talked to them about. But um, yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, there's an element that, I mean, I'll be very honest. I look at this and I look at this, this whole healthcare mess that we're in and as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the big players, everybody talks about wanting to save money in healthcare, but down deep, I don't see anybody really wanting to save money in healthcare. And because when, when somebody comes in and really wants to, really wants to make a change and, you, and there, it, it really, there is a viable option, you know, you just see that it gets shot down because there's a lot of money because, you know, money is big business. It is a big business and there's a lot, and there's a lot more money in people being sick than people being healthy. Yep. Yeah. And so I don't see, you know, I, so I just don't see a, a lot of effort being put forth into the wellness plans, a true wellness plan that should, or edu- wellness education plans that would overall, you know, decrease spend in the long run. And, um, and looking at, and I don't see a lot of open-mindedness to models that can cut the cost of healthcare. The for-profit sort of capitalist model doesn't seem to be the right model for healthcare because it, the incentives get kind of screwed up. Right. They do. They do. But I'm curious to know what you think about that. And maybe right or wrong model is the perhaps the wrong word, but I'm just curious about, you know, when we put profitability as the most important thing, then it puts incentives in squirrely places. Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. You know, so direct primary care, looking at that model, 
is it still falls on that for-profit healthcare side, but it's access literally 24 seven. It's fully transparent. Um, and it is cost effective. It's decreased cost yet. It's still a for-profit model. And this model all day long, um, versus let's take a hospital who's a nonprofit, huge money, huge costs, huge expense, but their quotes nonprofit. And I, so when I look at the differences on that side, I'm like, I will take this for-profit direct primary care model all day long, every day, uh, to take care of 90% of people's healthcare needs, but it still falls on the for-profit side, but it's not the non-transparent, non-cost-effective behemoth that also exists out there. So I, that's kind of where I tend to put it. You know, and the other part of that is when you look at the insurance companies being brought into the mix, um, I mean, what, what has happened with insurance companies is now they have taken away the free market in medicine. There is, there's, you know, you can't have, I mean, if you had, if you had clinics that were in a free and, and practices that were independent and in a free market, they would, the competition alone would help drive down the cost. The problem is we have no competition with each other because everything is, shuff, is shuffled through this middleman, which is this insurance company who is basically calling all the shots. They set the prices, they set essentially everything. And, you know, and, and if you had a, you know, we have, we're, you know, we have the amount that we have started with our direct primary care. So ours is $70 a month. If every primary care provider ended up leaving the hospital and starting their own direct primary care, you know, that, that immediately, that competitive effect, you would see that the monthly memberships would probably start going down, right? And then they're going to hit that level that nobody can go any lower and, and maintain and stay, um, uh, and stay in business. And, and so I think that, you know, I'll be honest, I think what we need is we need a free market in medicine. We need to bring back the competition. I think the government can help to, to um, help set standards, the minimum standards that have to be that everybody has to meet. You can do that through reporting. We've already seen that through Obamacare and how that's working in terms of population management. All of that can still happen under a free market of medicine with, a, with, with and bringing competition. But there is an issue that when, you know, and, and when we talk in, in direct primary care, you know, it is in, with insurance, it again has completely taken away that whole concept that cash is king. And, and so if somebody comes in, I cannot, you know, because everything is so um, dialed in with the insurance companies and everything else, it makes it very difficult for me to go to a, you know, two hospitals and have them compete back and forth for say, a CAT scan for my patient. And I can't go in and start to, you know, we, we've been able to do it with other independents. We are at mobile x-rays. Um, we've been able to negotiate a cost for our patients of $60 for any set of x-rays. That includes the radiology overread. That is $300 to the hospital. But only because I had an independent, you know, radiology person um, was I able to negotiate those types of rates. So I really think that if we were able to bring more of a free market and a competitive market to medicine, we kind of remove these third-party payers on some way so that, so that we can um, bring, you know, again, our, you know, our competitive competition to this, um, to medicine, then I think then, I think that it would drive down the prices. I think ultimately that is what would drive down the prices. And you make me think about the the lack of transparency as a buyer of healthcare, that there's no price tags on anything when you go in to make your purchase. Correct. 
And it's not until after you receive the bill that you find out what the price is, which is a really bizarre way to shop for right, things. Right. And you can't, and have you ever, I don't know if you've ever tried to go into an office and ask, you know, how much is something going to be? They cannot give you an answer. They give you the runaround. They can't, they don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Even in our, in the insurance billing side of what we do, we'll, we'll try to ballpark for people because we, we have a pretty good idea of what things are, but every insurance has a different fee schedule and different discounts and some things count and some things don't. And that's all run by the insurers. And we are basically kind of at their whim for that. And we try to explain that to the patients and we do the best we can. And like I said, at least give some type of a ballpark, but we don't even know. And we're pretty dang good at knowing the price of almost everything. And it's so challenging, so challenging. So is there a single boogeyman here or are there just boogeymen all over the place with this, with healthcare, with the healthcare mess? Oh, I think it's multi-layered, multi-layered from big pharma to insurers, to hospitals, to relationships, to government, to broker firms, to there is a lot of money going on out there and it's not coming to small independent people trying to make a difference and it's not going back to the patients. So this is a question that is like maybe out of left field, but I feel important to ask in spite of the fact that it may make some people uncomfortable. And that is around, you know, we have a society that let's just say on average is perhaps not great at taking care of itself. And that looks like a whole bunch of problems, right? From physical ailments to mental ailments and so on. And, um, and not to place blame or put judgment on anybody. How does that factor into the whole situation? You know, we're imposing our own burden on the entire system. Absolutely. You know, and that's conversations that we've even had with some of the insurance companies because we run, I mean, we taught, one thing we do pride ourselves on is really working with patients and with nutrition and how food can be their medicine. And we, we talk at length with patients in the clinic and we've even have started a nutrition boot camp that we offer three times a year. And we have, have gone and talked to uh, the insurance companies who've shown them result, the results from our, um, from our boot camp because we do labs before and after and then we do, you know, BMI and blood pressure and have been able to show them the results. So BMI, so looking at their weight and their height um, and then blood pressure. And we've talked to them about those, you know, our results. and it's that you know, it's like if you could help fund this for your patients, I I think you know you we, I think they could come off of a lot of medications, which we've been able to do with our patients. You see, I mean, you see chronic pain go away, so many issues that get so much better if not completely resolved. And I mean, I'm at one point we just finally looked at and, and they just look at us and it's like if you don't think what people what food people put in their mouths doesn't affect your bottom line, like think again. Because it does. I mean, I had a patient, we have one, just one patient alone was on a medication for her diabetes that cost $10,000 a year. Well, lucky for her, she only had a $20 copay, but guess who was paying the rest of that, right? That was all coming out of the insurance company. And after the boot camp, she was able to stop the medication. And I saw her, I just saw her last month and she's a year, almost, oh, she's almost a year out from her, the boot camp that she did. And she's still off that medication. So, and that's just one, one medication. And, and it's not like she's super strict. She's just made enough of a change. And, you know, and, and the, you know, and the people to blame for this is the food industry is, are the people to blame. <laughs> yeah. Right. And is at the heart of, uh, probably at the heart of 80% of our disease. So I'm curious also to know, 
what impact you think being two women pioneer disruptors has on what you're doing? Hmm. (laughs) That's a big question. I don't know if I have, I have to really think about that, but I can say I am so proud of my business partner who's in the other room, love her to pieces and would not be here without her. And the fact that we got to fight to bring direct primary care to the state of Montana is pretty cool. And so that's amazing. And the fact that in 2007, when we opened our clinic and people thought that we, because the, the rates were so cheap and it was so transparent that somebody even asked us or had heard there were rats in the clinic at one point. Like, yeah, no, we tiled those floors ourselves in that clinic. And so to come really from where we were through that, through all of the stuff that goes on when you're brave enough to disrupt and step out and come through that with somebody like my partner, Carol Bridges, there's, you know, it's so gratifying and we will fight every day and roll in the mud and try to make change. And it's just, you know, it's just a blessing to get to do that here. Um, and what happens next, that's, that's the exciting part. Cause we're still fighting clearly. So did you pull that punch, Leslie? <laughs> No, I didn't. <laughs> no punches. <laughs> Come on. You haven't had a target on your back as a woman. Probably. You have know, been ill-received, gotten some pushback, have some men maybe talk down to you, maybe. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. I can say we did at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> we did at the beginning. We did it. And, and I think people, I, think, I don't know if it was because I was a woman or a doctor. <laughs> Because nobody thinks doctors have good any business sense, which we really don't. I mean, the, the company probably wouldn't have made it this far without Leslie <laughs> kind of keeping me straight. Right. Oh, cool. Okay. I have to have a, a profit loss. Okay. I can do that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, but at the beginning, absolutely nobody, there was a, a number of people who didn't take us seriously. We, there was a, you know, we had an issue where when we were in Stevensville that one of the hospitals said, Oh, we'll work with you. Yes. And they were picking up our labs and, Stevensville and, um, and, and running them for us and, and everything. And then all of a sudden they just stopped picking up, right? Because now they felt that we were in competition with them. And, and it was interesting that, it, yeah, obviously as we became more successful, then uh, we became more of a threat. And it wasn't, it, and it really took us about two years in business that I feel that people finally did take us seriously and realize that, okay, it's not, it's not going away. And I guess now, and so then we were starting, so being approached by the same organization saying, hey, you know, we'd really, you know, sorry that all happened, um, but we'd really like to work with you now. (laughs) And so, you know, and again, I don't know if that's, you know, initially that's, yeah, that they, honestly, I just don't think they thought we would last. And so, and yeah, so later on, they commended us on our entrepreneurship. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there have been through the years, and I, again, I didn't really have to think about that, but there have been many conversations between Carol and I over and over. And I remember looking at her and like, do they really think we're just two dumb girls and we would laugh about it and we'd move on. <laughs> we'd like, go, uh-huh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's yeah. That's been kind of a fascinating roller coaster. And fortunately at the end of the day, we just could laugh with each other and keep cooking. So mm-hmm. right. just keep going. Yep. Did I hear you right? That you said you had to fight to get direct primary care in Montana. Direct primary care has to be legislatively protected. And in the state of Montana, uh, Steve Bullock had two opportunities to protect this business model and vetoed both of those opportunities on his desk 
two sessions in a row. And these were, so when that was vetoed by him, they had passed the House and the Senate statewide bipartisan. So bipartisan support to have this business model in the state of Montana. And he decided that it was not good for Montana, that uh, providers would double dip and this just wasn't a good plan. So he said no. So when we decided to bring direct primary care, we, um, we had to fight for that. And we reached out to our insurance commissioner, Matt Rosendale, who uh, basically helped write or wrote the memorandum of understanding and handed that back to Governor Bullock and said, no, these ladies are doing it. This clinic is opening direct primary care. And, and I agree with them. And this is not insurance. And it will not be, it does not have to operate like insurance and they are protected to do so. And that happened at the tail end of 2017 before we opened our doors in 2018. We still need full state legislation passed um, to protect it all the way. But that can't happen until we have a different governor who is not going to veto it based on a party line veto, which is stuff that we've talked about many times over and over. And so hopefully by 2021, we can really protect the model fully at the state level. Wow. Okay. I'm a little bit surprised. And for our listeners who are outside of Montana, Steve Bullock is our governor. Um, I'm really surprised to hear that he would veto it because he seems like not the type who would, I mean, he's, that surprises me. We were, you know, when we started looking at it, we, we had no idea because you know, your head's down in your own business for so many years. You're not looking up all the time trying to see what else is going on. So by the time we figured out we wanted to do it, we found out that it had actually been vetoed twice. We were shocked. And that just kind of fueled our fire, frankly. And, and it's crazy because the state employees have it, the state clinic, right? And it runs very much on a similar model. It's a per member per month model that the state pays to an organization out of Tennessee, not even local. And that's acceptable. And we're like, well, how is that acceptable? And this isn't acceptable. Um, And so it didn't make any sense, frankly, and it still doesn't make any sense. And nobody really can make heads or tails out of it um, other than we're going to try again in 2021 and get the whole thing protected. So. Wow. I know. I know. Okay. That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what we thought. It doesn't fall in line. If somebody has a, a, a strong, opinion about having Medicare for all um, and trying to see everybody under one under a single party payer. And so this does not fall in line with that at all. And so that is, this is a threat to that type of medical model. And so I can assume that that's probably what he's looking at. He wants to see, you know, he's, I mean, that Medicaid expansion, which is, you know, when that had passed, that's great. Um, but, you know, that's, there's a, there's a big difference between Medicaid, you know, expanded, expanding Medicaid, um, and Medicare for all. That's a, it's, it's two different, it is really two different things. And so I think that that is probably his agenda. And so I, I completely get it. I absolutely do. But if you're a healthcare provider who works under the Medicare system that is already broken and has been, I mean, that we've already seen all of the, uh, um, you know, doomsday news that if, if something doesn't change, radically that, you know, Medicare won't survive, that it's non-sustainable. So why would you take an entire country and put them under a non-sustainable um, healthcare system? And so, right. And so I guess that that's where my frustration is. And, and again, being a provider who has practiced under Medicare, um, it, you know, I, I don't think that's the answer. I just, I don't. And again, trying to bring more of a free market into the medical field, I think, is uh, a better solution, to be honest. I think, it, and I think, I'm not saying it needs to be a free-for-all. I think there can be regulation to it. But I do think that um, 
I think that is finally what would drive down the cost of healthcare. Oh my gosh, so much. <laughs> there's so much here that I want to dig into. Um, <laughs> and I want to turn to some advice that you would give to other people who are also maybe some years behind you in their business experience as a health and wellness practitioner. Because I work with a lot of health and wellness practitioners in a variety of fields who struggle as business owners. And I'm curious to know if you had each a piece of advice to give to them, what would it be? My advice when we decided to do this, no, we were already doing it. Actually, <laughs> I took a evening business class for a couple of weeks and that was the only business class we had between the two of us. So we, uh, my advice would be if you're early enough in your career and you have time, take a few business classes, understand <laughs> what an ROI is and whatever, accounting, payroll, anything you can pick up just to even understand the language of business will help you. Um, we have learned that in the past 12 years, ground up for sure. My other piece of advice where we're really fortunate is, you know, we're a company, we keep everything inside the company, all of the billing, all of the payroll. We're really lucky to be able to do that. Um, and we're really lucky to have uh, the support of our families and a lot of them have worked for us or still work for us now. And that also helps, I think helps us as a small business grow and not have other worries out there when we've got so much to focus on already, just trying to keep our heads above water. So. Yeah. Excellent advice. Mm -hmm. How about for you, Carol? You know, I would say, um, think outside the box. You know what? Uh, there's, there's plenty of people out there doing, especially when it comes to healthcare you know, everybody doing it the same way. And if you can establish yourself as somebody different, find out what the need is in, in your particular field. What is the need? What, what, do pe what do people need? Like for us, we knew that people needed accessible, affordable healthcare. And we were out to deliver a different model. And that's where we started in 2007. So identify the need and then think outside the box because I can tell you that, that a lot of that need isn't being met right now in the current system. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's also great advice. It's much easier to run a business when you're selling something that people want and are ready to buy. Correct. And it's good to be controversial, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you're controversial, if you have people that hate what you do and other people who love what you do, then you're probably onto something. So it's good to be controversial because it means that you are being that you you're you're tapping into something that that somebody's feeling threatened about. You know, and that, and that's going to please. And what that means is, that, so they have something to protect there. Um, and it, and typically, um, you're going to have an, a number of people out there that are going to respond positively to that. Yeah, and then the important piece that goes along with that is to not be frightened off by controversy. I was just going to say that. Do not be afraid to rock the boat. Nope, because this boat needs to be rocked. Yes, it does. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> if there were no limits on what you could create. What would you build out? <laughs> Say That's it. a great question. <laughs> we would build out a, a complete outpatient center under the DPC model. So you would have your primary care, your integrated behavioral health, physical therapy, pharmacy. Uh, we would also be able to do endoscopy. So that's where people could get their um, colonoscopies done. Um, and you'd also have a um, kind of a subacute so you would not have an emergency room, but you would have a well-staffed, um, you know, uh, extended urgent care so that we would have uh, CAT scan, x-ray, ultrasound, and lab in the basement. 
So we wouldn't be doing true emergencies, but there's so many things that come, what, at least what 85% of things that are in the emergency room. I mean, people who walk in, walk out, um, because it's not a true emergency. We can rule out a lot of the badness with something with, you know, if we had those, just that type of imaging ability and having lab in the basement and have a, a monthly membership. But I'm at, so imagine that if you needed to be seen, you know, that you could go into this urgent care and get a CAT scan and all of this. And imagine having all of that, or let's say having your colonoscopy done, or you see integrated behavioral health and all of this. And let's say you pay a monthly amount of $160 for that, and you don't pay a dime when you walk in and when you walk out. And that model, that is there. And that is very all covered under your one, under that monthly membership. And we are working those numbers now. We're putting pen to paper now to see what that, what would, how many patients would it take and what would that monthly membership look like? Oh, I love that. <laughs> I know, me too. We're so excited. <laughs> how long, how long do you think that would take to build out? Uh, well, it would take, you know, that is, you know, this, that is something that probably would take an, an investor to help us because just the building alone, the, uh, but I will tell you that if the other part of this is that if we could get insurers on the insurance, I mean, the insurance companies on board, you know, to help pay for it. And then, or even if, it, let's say if a, um, an employer paid for the membership, um, that they would have a significant decrease in the premium because I mean, how often would they have to go in and, and have, uh, and, uh, you know, go into an urgent care, go into an emergency room, be very rare. Very rare. Then colonoscopies that are now what two, three, four thousand dollars. Imagine if the insurance company never got a bill for that. You know, I mean, so right. And it's amazing that when you really put pen to paper on what the cost truly is for these things, doesn't cost that much. It really doesn't. We already, I mean, just a true cost of a, of a the true cost of a colonoscopy. If we did it, would be about oh, if even if let's say with a couple of biopsies, would be probably about seven hundred dollars. So like a third of the cost. A third. Wow. I know. Okay. So then, so then last question. So you have no idea how far this podcast goes out, right? Like the reach is just endless. So what help do you need to make that happen? We would need, I will tell you what we would need. We need an investor who wants, we want to make a point. This, and this is what for me, and I think for Leslie too, is that we want to make a point with this outpatient center. We want to show how inexpensive it could be. I mean, when, when they talk about, I know that, you know, the, the, there are, you know, business people that are meeting secretly to try to put together something, you know, for, to help with the cost of healthcare for their employees. Um, you know, that it, it's going to be a model like this, that this is what's going to decrease the cost of healthcare. And so what we need is an investor who's interested in making a statement and, sh and proving that this can be done. And that it and I and to be honest, I already know it can be done because I already work in I, my other hat is I'm medical director and chief of staff of a critical access hospital in a town of about 3,500 people, and I know exactly what it costs. I know all the costs that it takes to keep that hospital open, and it would be some and it would be this would be a lot cheaper than that. So I know I have an idea. For, so that if we that's the number we're working on is if we had 3,000 people who subscribe to this once you know that they paid a monthly fee what would that fee be to, for them to be able to walk in and walk out and never be charged for that? So you need like a Jeff Bezos or I don't know mm -hmm. who the head of Google is right now, Eric Schmidt, I don't remember, um, to be like, we want to have our own clinic for our own employees. And then they're going to be like, these ladies have the model and they've already figured it out. So we're just going to 
subcontract to them. Yeah, because at that point, it is literally a cookie cutter. I called it the outpatient centers of America. Bam, here's one here. Here's one here. Here's one here. Here's one here. There you go. Right. Bam, we did it. Bam. You can all have it. Right. So then you would only use hospitals for what hospitals should be used for, which is trauma. I mean, massive injury or, you know, heart attacks. I mean, there's, but, you know, so, I mean, much like you should, you know, your insurance is there not, not to cover wellness and all these other things. It's there. So if something catastrophic happens that you don't go bankrupt, right? Hospitals should be there to supply care for those, you know, you know, serious events that occur, right? Those catastrophic events that occur. And then, you know, in, in, you know, and then outpatient centers like this that are run cost effectively, um, you know, that, I mean, talk about decreasing the cost of healthcare. And again, putting this, putting these into a free market is only going to, the competition is only going to, only going to drive down the price. Oh my God. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. And maybe at some point, a few years down the road, the number one cause of bankruptcy is no longer healthcare. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> That's right. And I'm like, gosh, and this would be a lot cheaper than a car payment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> car payment. In fact, you could get a new car. <laughs> Boy, all the power to you ladies. I totally love what you're doing. And let us know if there are other ways that we can help and support what your vision is. Thank you so much for coming on the She Thinks Big podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Leslie. And thank you, Carol, for coming on the She Thinks Big podcast. I'm so impressed by their vision and grateful for their courage and their tenacity to build an alternative that is both viable and successful in the face of very stiff headwinds. I knew that healthcare was broken, but having the chance to dig in more deeply helped me see just how broken it is and how complicated it is to fix it. Leslie's and Carol's dedication to fixing a problem that seems so intractable is really inspiring to me. Listeners, I would love to know what you take away from this episode. I hope you'll come share in the She Thinks Big Facebook group. If you're not already a member, just go to Facebook and search for She Thinks Big, and I'll let you in. It's a great place to be if your big ideas need time and space to grow. Also know that I love working with women who have big visions, who have an idea that's big and daunting and scary, and it's not always quite clear to them how to make it a reality, and it's not always quite clear how to move forward on it. One of the things that I'm really great at is helping women clarify that vision and clarify the steps required to take it. If you could use some clarity on a big project that you're facing, know that I would love to work with you. VIP days are great for getting all those messy ideas out of your head and onto paper with the steps laid out and an action plan before you that you can implement right away, plus the support that you need to help make it happen when the going gets tough. If you're curious, you can check out more at my website. Go to shethinksbigcoaching.com and click on the work with me tab. All right, ladies, it's been a pleasure. That's it for me today. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.